Hello, everyone. This is Manoj Tandon, your host of Dark Rhinos Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Greg Edwards join us. Greg is the CEO of CryptoStopper, a ransomware protection service that automatically detects and stops active ransomware attacks. He has been a technology entrepreneur since 1998, which makes me feel young. That's great. And has founded many businesses, including Access Backup, a backup and disaster recovery company for the insurance industry that he founded a few years before CryptoStopper. He is a skilled person in disaster recovery, cloud computing, and network security, just to name a couple things. Uh, we're honored to have him on the show. Thank you for being here, Greg. Thanks How for having me, Manoj. Uh, it's, it's fantastic to have another entrepreneur on here. Um, we get them from time to time and, and they're always, I, I can't say that I've had not one person that's been boring. They're all very interesting characters. And I, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> well, good. So, we want to start keep with the, that. Yeah. We want to keep the, uh, we want to keep the audience entertained for sure. We don't want to put, yeah, there is. <laughs> hey, you know what? Um, edutainment is a thing and uh we're we're trying to go down that path so let, let, give us a little bit about your character background you know what what, what how did you get into first of all starting your own businesses because you've done a couple of them what was that journey it, for you yeah so i mean i think i was born an entrepreneur i mean i was detailing cars and hiring my my buddies to do the do the hard work when i was about 12 <laughs> So <laughs> I formally started the first company when I was 24 and really had no idea what I was doing, um, but actually still own that company today. I, I absentee own a uh, managed services business that I still still own today. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it started at a very young age. In your uh, journey as an entrepreneur, are there some guidances you can give in terms of anyone that's contemplating it? Is there any reality checks you want to throw out there? Well, I mean, some of the, some of just the standard of, if it's not, it's not easy. I mean, it is a ton of hard work. You've got to, got to be able to buckle down. But I, I think that the, probably the number one thing that I just did natively and didn't recognize this in myself even, um, but it was taking action and going and not being afraid to take that first step. And I, at 24, I did that unknowingly and not even realizing that other people wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, so whether it's bringing a product to market or going out on your own and starting a services business, take that first step and go get the first client or release rev one and go get someone testing it in the real world. So what about the fear of failure? I mean, again, so that's something that I <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately did not have. I didn't ever have a fear of failure. Now I've grown into that with age. Um, and I think <laughs> <laughs> that the more it because i i'm a i'm a fail fast kind of entrepreneur and go iterate and try the next thing and make sure that it's working and and if you fail you've got to learn from it so but I, but you can't be afraid of failure that's I, i'm glad that 
you answered it. I couldn't have teed that up any better. That was the the answer that uh, I, I think I wanted everybody to hear that that failure is not necessarily a bad thing if you're going down the entrepreneurship road. In fact, it's almost necessary to become really successful. Absolutely. And it, if for me, early on, like failure wasn't even a thought, like that wasn't even an option. And now, so now, now I view failure as a positive thing. And there are failures that certainly still happen, but you've got to learn from those and, and take it for what it is that not every, I mean, if you, if you never try anything, you'll never fail. Right. So, <laughs> but <That's... laughs> don't be that person. <laughs> Yeah, that won't be a very interesting life, will it? I, right. <laughs> so I, I guess before we move into some hardcore cybersecurity topics here, you know, I just uh, on the subject of entrepreneurship, do you think that this is something that could be taught in school? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is an element, like if you if you look at it in a sports scenario, there's an element of talent for sure. But I think entrepreneurship is something that can be taught. And I think, I think dealing, talking through dealing with fear, dealing with failure, those are the biggest things. It's not, I mean, anyone can come up with lots of ideas. It's a matter of implementing and not fearing that failure to go do it. And then, you know, then you have to be able to execute. And there's a big difference between entrepreneurs and go start something and get it from zero to one between and and other entrepreneurs and get it to zero to 10 million that's and they they are very different skill sets actually very different yep and and i'm one that i'm the zero to 10 million but not the 10 million to 25 million i'm yeah, i'm ready to a, turn it over to someone else at that point and it's important to know that, but that's the, that is where all the innovation happens. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's the fun After stuff. that, you're getting it to uh, <laughs> operational effectivity, right? Which, right. which becomes an analytical exercise. And, and I guess that was the point in asking the question, because at the university level, when we see a lot of the curriculums for these, and I, and I love picking on them because you look at the <laughs> entrepreneurship programs, they're often based on a lot of analytical objective things, which is important, you know, like how do you analyze the market? You know, how do you gauge yourself against the competition? Okay, those are all fun things, but what you spoke about, that fear of failure, you know, getting over, taking that first step, that's where the real magic is. And and yeah, and, and it, you got it, it is, you well, know. I, I think at the university level that a lot of the entrepreneurship programs have come out of their MBA programs. Yes, and they have. Very, very different skill sets between related, but very different skill sets between an MBA program and entrepreneurship program. I couldn't agree with you more. So with with that being said, let's let's talk about Crypto Stopper. All right. How did this come about? Uh, how did yeah. yeah? How did this company come about? What's the story? What's the backstory here? Yeah. So so I started an offsite backup and disaster recovery company in 2007. 
Uh, and we started seeing the rise of ransomware as far back as 2012. And if you okay. if you recall, that's really when uh, when Bitcoin Bitcoin was introduced in 2009, but 2012 is when it really started to take off. And if you look at the rise of ransomware, it completely coincided with cryptocurrency becoming available and mainstream. Um, and we were seeing those ransomware attacks nonstop in the offsite backup business. Um, we really? did so. To give an example of our, we weren't a huge company specialized um, in insurance agencies, but during Hurricane Sandy, we did nine simultaneous recoveries on the East Coast. Uh, wow. It, yeah. All is that the because time. their data centers went down or is it because of ransomware? That you so we were their data center. I mean, at that point, these were on-site servers okay. that were all running. I mean, the cloud... That company was started before the cloud exists. I mean, clouds always existed, right? It was, but um, we had it before the, the cloud was what it is today. <laughs> um, so, but nine simultaneous recoveries during Hurricane Sandy. We then had a follow up of one weekend that we did thirteen simultaneous recoveries because of one ransomware strain. So. So I was seeing this happening in real time and knew that this was just, this problem was, I mean, I knew probably in 2014, 2015 timeframe is when I knew this is going to be a serious, serious problem. Uh, and it was a good time. So I exited from the offsite backup company in 2016 with no real intent of developing our own software, okay. but with the intent of starting an MSSP to, to, to go similar to Dark Rhino, to go protect companies uh, and put in the right tools. Well, we were using um, advanced EDR. Uh, we were using Alien Vault back, back at the time before anyone had ever even heard of right. EDR and, and Sims or anybody who was implementing them. Uh, and ransomware attacks were still happening. And so we we built a PowerShell script. The very first version of CryptoStopper was a PowerShell script. One of my engineers that's uh, still with me today came to me and said, why, why don't I got this idea um, and built a PowerShell script that would deploy bait files and then monitor those bait files and stop an active attack. Took about nine seconds, which was way too long. Um, but over time, we developed that into an actual application, built a Windows native driver to be able to collect the information and built our what we call uh, post-execution termination algorithm to watch for okay. that actively running ransomware attack and kill it. So I, that seems like it was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, but uh, this is all before WannaCry became a thing. Yeah, yeah. It was it was about that time frame. We had we had developed the PowerShell script before that, um, but yeah, it was it was in that same time frame, 2017. So you know, going back to the disaster recovery company, uh, Access Backup. How did you guys prevent your backups from getting infected? Now we've seen that happen quite a bit. Yeah. So, I mean that was just good hygiene it wasn't i mean it was just good cybersecurity practices and the way that we implemented it so we for 
every one of our clients, we did a white glove setup of their initial backup and required them to set an encryption key that wasn't used in their existing system. So, you know, having passwords that weren't the same across an entire network, like that, that was craziness in 2010. <laughs> oh, even, even today, I can tell you there are, there are still Oracle databases out there with the default passwords it, in place. You'll insane. find them. It's insane, isn't it? Um, and so that really, I mean, it was just good hygiene practices from the start where, we had their offsite backups encrypted with a password that they set that was different from their local admin passwords. So wh why is it that companies, even today, they really struggle with getting a great disaster recovery program in place? I'm, I'm sure it's, it's hard. That's why <laughs> it takes time. <laughs> It's not, I shouldn't say it's hard because it's really not that hard with the right tools, but it takes time. And the typical, you know, typical IT guys are too reactive and don't have someone holding them accountable to test their DR. So we back at Access Backup, we would we would do a week long. Um, test where we would send everybody home. I mean, this was before remote working was remote working, okay. right? Uh, so we would say, okay, on this week, and typically did it in July. I don't know why it was July, but typically in July, we'd say, okay, this week, the office has been destroyed. Now okay. what? And And again, you know, small company, 20 employees. So it wasn't like 20,000 employees and you got to figure it out. Um, but still, I mean, that, that, I mean, you talk about testing your disaster recovery, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're actually putting it to work. You're seeing yeah. from zero to hero. How long ta does that time take and right. how does it work? Right. Right. Uh, and you know, I mean, we were in, this was, this would have been back again in that 2010 to 2015 timeframe. And so we were using multiple data centers and we could work remotely even back then. And so it was a matter of, okay, we'll go home and we connect through our VPN and we work. And that, that being able to do that is very different between a 20 employee company and even a 200 employee company. But testing the DR isn't that much harder, but that's really what it comes down to is actually not just doing a tabletop test but actually recovering and how long what is that what what is that real rto number not just a target of what we think it is but what's right. it actually going to take yeah and i think <clears throat> this is where the executive team has to get on board and understand how critical that exercise is and and not just be an impediment in the way of it absolutely because I can, you have to go with the assumption and anyone listening, uh, you know, it's, there will be an attack. It's just the fact that it hasn't happened to your firm is a matter of providence. It's just. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Know. I mean, we, we both know that putting in the layered security, doing defense in depth, like those are all the right things to be done. And even when you do that, 
you can't guarantee a hundred percent protection. You cannot. You're, you're exactly you're, correct. You're making yourself a harder target. And that's if you can get to, you know, whatever percentage, you're lowering your risk of being attacked. If you're not doing those things, I, it's just a 50-50 toss-up. Yeah. And and maybe you're comfortable with that, at which point I guess you don't need cybersecurity. You know, if that's your yeah. risk tolerance, you're like, yeah, to heck with it. Okay. You know, I mean, that's a, that, that's a choice, I guess. <laughs> well, but I, I think that CEOs should, they should really understand that risk and, and they're, that's the piece that they don't, they're just sticking their head in the sand and saying, eh, not worried about it. Whereas if, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think a lot of there, there's also that IT communication back to the executive team. It's that, you know, the, the folks who are in charge of InfoSec oftentimes are speaking a language that the decision makers don't understand. Right? It's taking a really complicated topic and being able to summarize it down into digestible chunks. Yeah. And we, in, depending on the size of the company, um, if your IT department, if you don't have C-level folks in your IT department, which if you're a company of a thousand or less, you're not going to have a, a C, you might have a CTO, but they're not necessarily going to be C-level right cto and they have a hard time communicating what those true risks are and and yeah it's hard if the if the ceo doesn't dig in and doesn't understand and has an it department that isn't communicating the risk properly and has the doesn't have the ability to then yeah it's it's gonna be a mess well you know and that brings it to the next point here that even if you had a phenomenal disaster recovery program and it all works and you've tested it, it still doesn't really, it, it affects a big chunk of the risk from ransomware. But when you look at the remaining parts, you still have, you might be able to get back online, but your data is out there now. So you still have the brand issues. You still have the personal privacy laws that come into place and you still face the threat of fines and legal actions and all that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, these are the exact reasons that, that I started crypto stopper and split off. So from the, once we developed that initial PowerShell version, started yeah. using it then within our own environments, um, then I, it, I, it was a transition where, okay, this makes sense to sell this to other MSSPs and other MSPs uh, so that they can use it because it really is that rather than having depend on your disaster recovery system, you can depend on CryptoStopper to stop that attack. And it's a, what we built is that post-execution termination algorithm to recognize, okay, ransomware is running, let's kill it and kill it in less than a second so that it doesn't take the entire network down. It doesn't allow the exfiltration of the right. data. And it's a, it becomes a security incident instead of a full-blown disaster. And you know, I'm gonna ask you to walk us through the anatomy of a ransomware attack here in a second. 
But I want to step back because uh, this is a fascinating topic on, on ransomware is WannaCry. Everyone's heard about this. It's been written about at nauseum. To a degree, it's even relevant today. What what did WannaCry do that was so um, yeah. paradigm changing? Yeah, so WannaCry? so it was the first that, that I'm aware of. There may have been others before it that it just didn't get the notoriety, um, but really was the first crypto worm. So it was self-propagating. So that was, I mean, there's so many things that were unique about WannaCry, but that was the biggest one, was the fact that it was self-propagating. And it, and then add to that, that it also exploited a, a vulnerability that the only the U.S. government one month before WannaCry came out had the ability to use. So that, you add that exploit, the fact that it was a, a worm and that it was perpetrated by a state actor being everyone believes that it was North Korea. Uh, the, I mean, though, for a ransomware attack, and it was, that one was financially motivated, unlike Petya and not Petya, which yeah. were also state state actor attacks. Um, and and then the, the last relevant thing maybe about the WannaCry was the, the live off the land attack. So what we call either fileless attack or live off the land. So there wasn't anything new introduced to the to the environment. It's running an attack off of what's already there. And and you know it it needed a particular vulnerability that could have been uh, patched. If you had patched your systems it couldn't be executed. It, and it brought to right what it did not it brought to light the fact that vulnerability management is a serious thing. Yeah, yeah, it was the eternal blue was the eternal blue. That's that. Thank you. Vulnerability. Yep. Yep. I, I guess it brings to light something else, too. Like when you when you mentioned the U.S. government, only um, they were the only ones that had the ability to exploit it. I guess that's to me, it's kind of a fair warning that if we create back doors and systems that, quote, unquote, only the good guys could use, there's no way they're going to remain with the good guys it's yeah I, yeah i mean that we may have to have another whole uh i'd love <laughs> a to. whole podcast for that discussion because <laughs> we've had you know th there's been and it's been an emotional topic well apple should or microsoft should you know uh, give the, give the keys to the kingdom to a <laughs> state actor well yeah, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but and it's going to be a big but. I I don't see those keys staying with the no state way. Actor. Yeah, no way. It, it just it just would not. So what's happen. is why is this why is WannaCry still relevant today? I mean, you it's still out there. Yeah. So the the fact that it still lives is crazy to me too but i think the the thing that that why it goes on and why we still talk about it is because of the just the the devastation that it caused and the destruction that that it caused in the environment and opened the door for those live off the land there were there were live off the land attacks prior to that but that now really has become 
the the major focus at least of the the top ransomware as a service companies. So Lockbit is one that they're they're very prevalent in using live off the land techniques. Wow. So <clears throat> that should be a pause for concern for all of our listeners. So please take a note of it. Uh, the, thanks, Greg. Walk us through the anatomy of a ransomware attack. How how do these typically take place? Yeah. So uh, so the most common is still through email and a a link or an actual attachment in email. So that's still the most common way. And comes in, the user interacts with it and and starts that ransomware attack. Um, that That's the most common. And just to walk through what then happens, that ransomware, once the user starts it, then it enumerates typically the network. And so it goes out and looks for any network shares, any files that are out there and makes a determination. This isn't isn't it's all scripted so it's not necessarily a human making that determination but then starts attacking those data folders and whether it encrypts and then exfiltrates or straight encrypts to begin with um it 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 starts encrypting files and destroying the network without anyone typically even knowing that it's happening so that's yeah go ahead so question on that. So what, as soon as this process kicks off, does the ransomware not phone home? When at what point does it phone home? When would a sim, when would a sock notice this? Yeah, so I, I mean totally depends on the variant, but it wouldn't necessarily phone home immediately. If it's a if it's a an attack with an attachment and it's running and doesn't need to phone home, then it won't phone home immediately um, and may just set a time bomb to say start at 6 p.m. on Friday. And it knows it's gonna attack network shares and it's gonna start at 6 p.m. on Friday, hasn't called home because it is a traditional malware that's running ransomware. So that's one one type then the when you talk about the live off the land types those will need to phone home so that would be more say a user clicking on a link or exploiting a vulnerability where then it's running a remote script so then that's where it's going to phone home but the thing is is that these phone home calls aren't they're not going to necessarily known bad actors because those bad actors, I mean, they're constantly changing their their server to phone home to. So that's right. So it's not so the sim isn't necessarily going to pick up on that as an IOC yet. Yeah, because uh, so, even if you're watching the domains that you're and you have domain lists of known bad actors, there's a good chance it's going to get missed for exactly the reason you just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, you've had to have seen, I'm sure within your guys' environment, you've seen these brand new command control centers that are, they're not on any list yet. Well, you know, one of the things that we've done, and this is a, a little tidbit for all the IT 
people out there that or infosec people that they could probably try and it's a it's an interesting exercise is as as part of your network uh that is observable put a completely you know cyrillic configured system on there with a cyrillic keyboard and whatnot right and and see what happens because uh you know you never uh you don't want to attack this the russian government Right. If you're a if you're a bad actor, because they they don't like that. <laughs> and and if you're originating from that part of the world, it's interesting to see how the activity subsides. You can try this experiment for yourself. Yeah, yeah. When they when they come across it, they're like, "Oh, are we? Is this a?" Yeah, that's interesting. This... I've not, that's one thing that I've not ever heard of anyone putting a honeypot out with that intention to see but well, yeah that would be I, now it's public knowledge give it a go <laughs> I, I i it's it's a replicable result um do it yeah and, and yeah. you'll see it uh, yeah <laughs> if it originates from that part of the world those guys do like oh shit you know maybe <laughs> this is a bad idea let's <laughs> we'll stay off well i mean here's the thing so it 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 is not illegal for a Russian citizen to run a ransomware attack on anyone other than R Russian companies. So exactly. <laughs> there's no like they see that and say, oh, that's a Russian like we don't want we don't want <laughs> that might be Russian. This we could get in trouble for this as that's opposed right. to if they're attacking a U.S. business. That's that's just their normal day. And there's nothing illegal about what they're doing. Yeah, you, you're uh, in their world. Yes, there's nothing illegal. Yeah, and, no, and I didn't not say much... unethical, but <laughs> now they might be breaking U.S. laws. But if you're in Russia, you probably really don't care. So that's irrelevant Absolutely. to you. It's completely irrelevant to you. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I stopped you in the middle there. Uh, you were saying going back to the ransomware. Yeah. Attack. So the anatomy of a ransomware attack. The 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 ones that we really, I mean, a crypto cyber will protect against any kind of exfiltration or encryption ransomware. Um, oh, it, it, so it'll stop the exfiltration of data? Uh, so won't, we're actually adding that feature in, um, in one of our next releases. But it will, what it's watching for is that encryption happening. And almost all exfiltration, they're going to encrypt the files before they send them. So we're going to catch that before it goes out. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. And is it, is this, is the technology of crypto stopper running as a process or is it actually a kernel modification? What's uh, so both actually. Uh, so there is a, a kernel driver that's collecting the information and then can, can take action. Um, and then, then it's analyzing that data collected from the kernel. Okay. So the ransomware perpetrators, they can't stop the crypto stopper processes from running. Would that Correct. be a fair statement? Yes. Yep. Because I, I would imagine that they know about you. And I'm sure there's somebody trying to figure out how to engineer their way around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're, we're, we've been preparing from the beginning for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how, how do you prepare for something like that? That's a, 
Because those well, guys are also innovating, right? That yeah, and, and yeah. I guess it gets to the future direction of ransomware. So y- please, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a cat and mouse game always. I mean, it, we have to think like hackers, and we've written um, we've written several variants of our own uh, say what I would call safe ransomware. Uh, so that we so we've written um, fileless ransomware. We've written we've got an attack simulator that we run, um, and so really understanding what what those attackers what are they going to do? What are they going to do to try to get around us? And always innovating to stop what we believe is that is going to be that next attack vector and and. And it's really, it's not so much about the attack vector for us. It's more about how does the, how does the attack take place? Like what's, once it runs, because again, we're on the damage control, not the prevention side. So this is post-execution. Ransomware is now running and that's actually easier from a, from a protection standpoint and a damage control standpoint than prevention. That, it's zone defense sense. if we were playing football. It's a <laughs> right, right. You know what? Let the guy make the catch. Don't let him go to the end zone kind of yep. thing. But yep. if how so but the so when you they kick off the process, I imagine they're gonna encrypt these are these guys are not using uh, super high-end encryption in the very early stages, right? Because the speed of it has to be really high, fast, which you can't do with uh, a complex encryption screen. What? How much damage is done on that initial system, or is that itself contained as well by crypto? Yeah. Software? So, so typically, what we'll see is anywhere from. Um, on the low end, one or two files to about a dozen files that are hit before CryptoStopper will kick in. And again, we're talking less than a second. And are you able to decrypt those those dozen files? That so we don't. So that's a, a another feature that we haven't haven't okay. added in yet, and really rely on backup and your traditional recovery Got for it. that. And, and again, all about that damage mitigation so that it doesn't, because if Crypto Stopper wasn't there rather than running for one second at this point, oh. it's going to run until it finishes. Now, a lot of times what we see, it's interesting. And um, I, I was on a, um, a committee recently where they talked about this, that a lot of ransomware processes that are kicked off that SIM tools or EDR tools have visibility to uh, is not the whole picture because a lot of them kick, kick off ancillary processes that those systems do not detect, right? Yep. So with Crypto Stopper, are you, how are you addressing those ancillary well, processes? Well, so really, so we're, I mean, at the heart of what we do is file integrity monitoring. Okay. So, it's really about the files rather than the processes. I mean, we then go and kill the processes, but we're watching at that at that disk and file level to see the actions of ransomware. Okay. So 
where do you fit in in a layered security architecture? Yeah, so I mean, I am a huge proponent of the advanced EDR, SIM, all of those tools. The So we fit in right alongside those. And if someone's not that advanced, we still CryptoStopper will still work. Um, it's just our our intent is that companies have a fully layered security and that CryptoStopper is a part of that. And and the reason that I say that and, and the reason that I encourage companies to also have EDR and SIM is that CryptoStopper is not going to protect against the data breach. That's not what CryptoStopper is designed to do. If they're exfiltrating data and they encrypt those files and we recognize that and stop it, I mean, that's great. But we're not, we're not there to detect and see that an attacker is dwelling on the system. That's not, CryptoStopper is just designed to recognize those file changes and kill that. So it's designed to be as an add-on tool to the fully layered security model. And, you know, the there was an interesting uh, stat out there, like the average enterprise. So I'm going to talk about the Fortune 1000, which I know is not of the listening audience here because most of our <laughs> listeners are SMB. But still, in, in that space, in the Fortune 1000, on average, they have 60 cybersecurity tools in their environment. And they are having vendor anxiety there, you know, because it completely flies in the face of vendor consolidation programs. So I wonder, you know, well, I guess I'll let me get this opinion from you. Is that vendor consolidation a good thing or having that multi-layered independent uh, defense and depth approach a better thing than vendor consolidation? So I will say long, my long-term view is that vendor consolidation will be a good thing. The, okay. in long the short, term. long, long-term. So, okay. and when I say long-term five years, um, five-year time frame. the, in the short term though, I mean, the, the issue of cybersecurity and the problems that we're having today are so varied. And the reason that that average is 60 tools is because the Cisco's of the world are not innovators anymore. And so the, and, and sorry. I couldn't I, achieve this. You're awesome. You, <laughs> yeah, I did. I, people, I did not cue this up. I did not do this. He's not reading from a card. He's <laughs> please, <laughs> Greg. <laughs> so, so it takes innovators and small companies, startups like CryptoStopper to recognize these threats in different ways to manage those threats. And then, then the vendor consolidation kicks in, but we're, I mean, we're just on the we're on the bleeding edge of the cybersecurity problem that we have. I mean, it's been, it's now been almost exactly 10 years since Bitcoin became mainstream and cryptocurrency became mainstream and really fueled the cyber crime that we have today. And so if you look at any industry, 10 years is about now. I mean, in modern history, it takes about 10 years 
for an industry brand new to really develop. Right. We're 10 years in right now. I mean, there was cybercrime before, but it wasn't like this. Cryptocurrency completely changed cybercrime. And so I, I went way off topic of, of no, your initial no, you, question. You, 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 but... <laughs> this is fantastic information. Please keep going. <laughs> yeah. So long term, I think the vendor consolidation is a good thing. I think we're we're probably five years out or so from when that really when you can get as a company. I don't know if I want to be this bold as to say the one silver bullet tool, because I don't think we'll be there in five years. But I don't you know might, that we'll ever get there. But yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't either. But you might go from the average of 60 tools down to 30. Yeah. I can see that happening. That that seems like a viable thing. And so from, do you, in, in terms of uh, trying to help the market, uh, do you see, uh, what is the biggest impediment in companies acquiring crypto software? What, what's preventing? So education and understanding the difference between damage mitigation and prevention. Yeah, and I think that's there is a uh, a chasm between leadership thought and the infosec team. There, there, there needs to be that bridge made because oftentimes when you're a fly on the wall in some of these conversations, you see decision makers saying, "Oh, you guys want another tool? Oh, that's going to be the silver bullet. Yeah, <laughs> that that's going to make us safe." But it's really understanding exactly what you've what you've said. It's Crypto Stopper is one more tool in a layered defense approach. It's prevention versus detection and response. They're both valid, both needed, uh, but they have different fits in the layered InfoSec approach. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, until that consolidation of tools gets to a place where you can go from 60 down to 30, then, you know, I, I do see other companies out there building technology similar to what we have. And I, you know, I don't love the competition, but there's room <laughs> and there needs to be, I, I think five years from now, tools like CryptoStopper will be ubiquitous. I mean, it's, it's, you've got to have that layer between the detection of attack and just full-on disaster recovery. And that's where we fit is that that file integrity monitoring with mm -hmm. automated action. And it's a prior to CryptoStopper coming out, I mean, there really were no other companies that were thinking about it in that way. And so so in helping the market. I hope that we have helped the market and I hope that we will continue to help to drive that innovation of, you know, don't just think of it as hundred percent prevention or a hundred percent disaster recovery. Right. There's an in-between space there where that, that detection and automated action can mitigate damage. A absolutely. Uh, I, I, agree with you uh i agree with you completely on that is your is your technology geared more towards the enterprise or is the acquisition is it affordable by even mainstream companies uh, affordable by mainstream 
companies. Yeah. So, uh, and we really have focused on the the SMB space through okay. managed service providers and MSSPs. Fantastic. I that's important. That well, then you're on the right show because that's the majority of the... <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's a, that's the majority of the audience. So I know we're down to three minutes here. I wanted to give the floor to you to speak about anything you want to talk about uh, in regards to anything that you have coming up, anything you want to plug. Yeah. So actually, we're right now we're at uh, CompTIA in Chicago at the ChannelCon event. Okay. So definitely check that out this week and then head out to our website. It's getcryptostopper.com uh, and okay. check out. Crypto Stopper and just see what it can do for your organization. Um, and last thing would be reach out to me on LinkedIn. Always happy to have uh, more more connections on LinkedIn. You can find me, Greg Edwards, and Crypto Stopper, and you, I'll be the should be the first one. If there's another Greg Edwards within Crypto Stopper, we have a, we have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a uh, a ransomware group or a Crypto Stopper group on LinkedIn? as well um you know we don't that's a that is a great uh addition that we should add and uh something that we should we should get started yeah i think that would be interesting because it's a it's a hot topic um we hear i can't think of a day that doesn't go by where there's somebody that we hear about uh got hit with oh uh, it's a little... yeah yeah i mean the ransomware attacks are are going to continue. It's it's a matter of now what's the weakest link and what's the easiest target for them. So, I mean, one piece of suggestion in the whole layered security and um, defense in depth as a company, and if, if you're in the InfoSec department, make yourself a hard target and talk to your leadership in that way about we have to be the hardest target on our street. So let's go do that. That uh, Sage advice. Well, Greg, we're out of time, but we really appreciated you being here. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and as you guys advance, uh, please uh, feel free to come back out on the show and enlighten us a little bit deeper into this world of ransomware. I wish it wasn't the case, but... It's going to be for quite some time to come. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to come back. Sounds great. Take care.